Keep that passage open in front of you. Let me pray before we look at God's word together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and we thank you that you are a God who lives. You are the same God we have just read about. Lord, in your mercy, would you show us what this ancient battle has to say to us here today? Would you show us above all how this bit of your word speaks to us about your son, Jesus Christ? Would you give me the words to say? Would you give us all the ears to hear? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as Matt said, we've been preaching through the Old Testament book of Joshua so far in the autumn term. It's the story of God taking Israel from their wandering in the wilderness after they've left slavery in Egypt, taking them out of that and into the promised land of Canaan. And for several weeks, the story was going along quite nicely. Things were going very well for Israel. Until last week, chapter 7, when things turned sour. After the victory at Jericho, one Israelite, Achan, stole some of the plunder from the victory, which they'd been expressly forbidden to do. And that brought disgrace on the whole of Israel. God said it was as if all Israel had sinned when Achan stole this plunder. And then as a result, chapter 7, at the start of that, Israel, they go to fight Ai for the first time. It's a small city with not that many people living in it. Uh, They only send a couple of thousand troops and they're routed, defeated by this small city as punishment for the sin of Achan. And then through the rest of the chapter, Achan's sin is exposed. We learn that he has stolen this plunder and at the end, he is put to death along with others with him for the wrong that he's done. So by the end of chapter 7, Israel are at a low. They've gone from great victory, leaving um, the, the wilderness behind them to suddenly punishment for this sin. I think they were doubtless afraid of what God was going to do with them. The generation before had been kept out of the promised land because of their sin. You probably thought things would be different now with Joshua and his generation, but I imagine they're wondering, is God going to treat them the same way that he treated Moses and his generation? How does chapter 8 begin? Does it begin with further punishment? Does it begin with Israel being kicked out of the promised lands? No. It begins with forgiveness. That's what we're going to think about first this evening is look at this passage. What does God's forgiveness look like? First, God's forgiveness here is immediate. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Great words after they've just suffered the punishment of Achan. How gracious is God being? There's not a cooling off period for Israel here. There's not a probation of God's forgiveness Joshua and the whole army, it says, are immediately sent back to Ai, where they'd been defeated. And they're told what? If you look at those verses, God has already delivered the king of Ai, his city and his land, into their hands. This happens on the same day that Achan sins. We're told when days change in these couple of chapters, there's no uh, day change between the end of chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8. So on the very day that Achan is punished, God extends his mercy to Israel again. His forgiveness is immediate. Do you realize God's forgiveness is immediate? Now, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you confess your sin to God regularly as you know you should, but you wander around, you wander around wondering 
if God has actually forgiven you. Or maybe you know, you've not been a Christian that long and you've asked for God's forgiveness, but you're not really sure if it's right for you to serve God yet. You're not quite on the level as these other Christians that you know. Am I on probation still in God's forgiveness? But look and see. God's forgiveness is immediate. On the very day that Achan was judged, God says to Joshua, do not be afraid, and sends him out to serve him. God's forgiveness is immediate. It's lavish as well. Differently to Jericho, when they attack Ai, God says they'll get to carry off the plunder and the livestock for themselves. You'd have thought after the episode with Achan, God would withhold the plunder for a bit. That was the very problem at the Battle of Jericho, that um, they mishandled the plunder. But here God says, no, it will be yours to take off. He promised the land and all in it would be theirs. And he's keeping that promise. His forgiveness is lavish. Do you realize that, that God's forgiveness is lavish as well as immediate? Do you think after you've asked for his forgiveness that actually he's still going to hold out on you for a little bit, see how you do, see if you can be trusted with the, the riches and the plunder of the Christian life? No. Look and see. Israel carry off all the plunder for themselves. And it's the same in the Christian life. God isn't withholding any riches of the Christian life from you. He's lavish with them. God's forgiveness is immediate, it's lavish, it's certain. And there's this wonderful detail uh, in the start of the chapter which for the people of Israel would have just preached to them that God's forgiveness was reliable and certain. So we know they're attacking this city Ai, okay? But in verse 9 we're given a bit more detail. We're told that the troops Joshua sends out wait between Bethel and Ai. So this other place Bethel is mentioned. Now it's very easy in the Old Testament, to, to brush over the, the place names and the locations that these stories happen. We don't know where they were, we don't know how to pronounce them. Um, but they are actually almost always significant, either because of what they mean or because of uh, what's happened at those places before in the Bible story. And Bethel and Ai should push us back in the Bible story to Genesis chapter 12. I'll read verses 6 to 8. You don't need to turn back to it. Genesis 12, 6 to 8. And Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So between Bethel and Ai is one of the first places Abraham went to after God had promised that his offspring were going to inherit the land. He built an altar there to commemorate that very fact. So when his descendants, generations later in Joshua 8, pitched their tents between Bethel on one side and Ai on the other, the very ground that they're camping on is telling them, God has promised you this land. This is where he promised it to Abraham, and he's still keeping that promise. In spite of Achan's sin, this land certainly is yours. God's forgiveness is certain. Do you realize his forgiveness is certain? Or do you worry that the ups and downs of your love for him are going to somehow disqualify you when Jesus comes back? Look and see, God wants Israel to be assured, not in how they feel, not in what's just happened with Achan, but by pointing them to these concrete reminders of his covenant with them. Look, you're between Bethel and Ai, where I promised to Abraham I was going to give him this land. We're going to come to the Lord's 
table later on. You may not feel that God is very forgiving to you right now, but he's put physical reminders in front of us that Christ's body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. These should preach to you that God's forgiveness is certain, as it was to Israel. God's not like us when we forgive people. If you're married, you know, your spouse wrongs you, they say sorry, you say it's fine, but inwardly you haven't really forgiven them. Outwardly you will continue to find small ways of making them suffer for the wrong that you have forgiven them for. God's forgiveness isn't like that. It's immediate, lavish, certain, just like we see in Joshua 8. That's the forgiveness God has shown anyone here who would call themselves a Christian, that he would show you if you're not a Christian and you chose to become one. That is God's forgiveness. But what comes after God's forgiveness? Forgiveness is how you start the Christian life. You realize you've wronged God, you've been living without him, you repent and turn to him and you receive his forgiveness. That's how the Christian life begins. It's how every day begins if you're a Christian. God's mercies are new every morning. You only wake up um, because of God's forgiving hand on you. But what comes after forgiveness? What is the rest of your day? What is the rest of the Christian life full of? That's really, I think, what this chapter is going to take us through. There is God's forgiveness, but what is after forgiveness? Well, in short, it's victory. Verses 10 to 29 tell us this extended story of a victory that God gives his people. After forgiveness comes victory. So Joshua, he sends, the details are hard to follow, so let's just get them clear. Joshua sends 30,000 men off uh, to camp between Bethel and Ai. He spends the night, Joshua, with the rest of the people in the camp Uh, In verse 9, we're told that. And then early the next morning, he travels to meet his army. He marches with a big group of 25,000 to attack Ai from the front. He leaves a small ambushing force of 5,000 who are going to sweep in later. That large force, they attack Ai and they pretend to flee. They draw Ai out of the city. And then the small ambushing force rushes in, captures the city, and then comes out and between them, They defeat Ai in the wilderness. And the people enjoy the plunder and they commit themselves to God afterwards. So God's forgiven them after the episode with Achan and then he gives them victory. Now the battle of Ai is one of three miraculous victories we focus on in the first half of Joshua. The second half just kind of moves really quickly through lots of stuff that happens. First bit of Joshua focuses on these three victories. Jericho, we saw the other week, Ai, and then another one at Gibeon in chapter 10. These three victories we focus on, what are the unique details of the victory at Ai that are going to teach us the unique lessons? Because all these battles are not the same, they don't all tell us the same thing. What's unique about the battle of Ai? Well, really, it's this this kind of ambush thing, isn't it? And um, if we look at verse 13, this gives us a detail that really teaches the lesson of chapter 8. We're told, verse 13, So the soldiers took up their positions with the main camp to the north of the city, and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. So we're told in the the translation that we have in front of us, the NIV, um, that Joshua stationed the ambush to the west of Ai, and this small force, if you read read in the ESV, another translation, it'll say Joshua stationed the rear guard to the west of Ai. They're kind of accurate descriptions. It's this smaller force coming from the back, the ambush. Um, But that's not kind of exactly what the word literally means in the language this was originally written in. The word used to describe that small group of 5,000 
is uh, the word for heal, achev in the Hebrew. Not heal as in get better, H-E-E-L, the heel of your foot. So we're told Joshua stations the heel to the west of Ai. And it's a really odd word to describe a group of soldiers with. There's not another time in the Old Testament where that word for heel is used to describe anything other than a heel or a footstep, maybe. So why on earth would the writer describe this ambushing force that's the key to the whole battle as a heel? It's a very unusual word to use. And if a Bible writer uses an unusual word, they want you to pick up on it. The heel is associated with two figures in the Old Testament. Uh, And by using such an unusual word, the writer wants us to think of those figures and to link them to Joshua. So who's the first figure we'd associate with the heel in the Old Testament? Well, it's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, after um, Adam and Eve have sinned, God promises that one of Eve's descendants is going to come and with his heel he will crush the serpent, crush Satan, the one who led humanity into sin. Uh, Genesis 3:14. The Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you've done this, cursed you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel." And so, from that point on in the Bible story, we're looking for when this uh, person who's going to come and crush the serpent with his heel will arrive. YPF, I talked to you about this a few weeks ago uh, at the start of term. And it's a prophecy ultimately that gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're told later in the book of 1 John that he came to destroy the devil's work. But the Old Testament, it points forward again and again and again to the fact that Jesus is going to come and crush the serpent with his heel. We should see in Joshua destroying Ai and its king with his heel, this little ambushing force, a picture of Jesus, the true Joshua, Yeshua, they share a name. We should see a picture of the real Joshua coming to crush Satan with his heel. Joshua's powerful crushing heel was in the form of an army. But Jesus' powerful crushing heel was in the form of a cross. And we even get a shadow of that. How does the king of Ai meet his end? Verse 29, he's impaled on a pole, or we could say hung on a tree, which according to the Jewish law is a sign that God has cursed someone. If they die by hanging on a tree, they are cursed by God. And Jesus is impaled, hung on a pole, hung on a tree for us, bears the curse that we deserve for our sin. But his death isn't just a means of forgiveness. It's the way that he defeats Satan. Colossians 2.15 tells us, having disarmed the powers and authorities, the powers and authorities of the evil one, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is Jesus' crushing heel on the head of the serpent. In a sense, Satan is impaled on that pole, hung on that tree, just like the king of Ai was. But only because Jesus was impaled there to break the power that he has over us. The life of a forgiven Christian, just like the life of Israel here, is sharing in the victory that God gives us. We share in the victory Jesus won for us at the cross. By nature, we prefer the devil to God. We're told by nature, we're his children, we're not God's children. But Jesus sets us 
free from that. He crushes Satan's head at the cross and allows us to live a life that's pleasing to God. In the Christian life after forgiveness is day after day sharing in that victory that Jesus won for us by being made more like Jesus and being less like the evil one. So we see in this victory the crushing heel that comes down and gives God's people victory. So after forgiveness comes victory. Yet the weird thing about this victory is that it looks like defeat. We can often be wary of speaking about victory in the Christian life. Um, if you know what the prosperity gospel is, it's you know, the idea that when you become a Christian, your life will get better and you'll have health and wealth and riches and you'll be victorious in life. And that makes us a bit wary of talking about victory. The Christian life is a life of sharing in victory, but often, as it does at AI, sharing in God's victory looks like a defeat. I think that's AI's unique lesson out of the Battle of Jericho, the Battle of AI, the Battle of Gibeon. God gives his people victory, yes, but he will often make it look like defeat. They have to flee from this uh, small city that they know they could easily take. They have to run out into the wilderness as if they've already been beaten. Let me ask, whether you can pinpoint the day that you first knew God's forgiveness, or if you can't remember, you've always grown up knowing that um, God's forgiven you your sin, what did you think your life would be like afterwards? What did you think you'd signed up for when you asked God to forgive your sin? What pattern did you think your life would take when you asked him to forgive you? Imagine being a soldier in this overwhelmingly large force of Joshua's, twice the size of Ai, turning and running as if they defeated you. If that were me and I were in Joshua's big force, I'd be thinking, this is not what I signed up for. This isn't how I thought this would look. I thought inheriting the promised land would mean sweeping in, easy peasy, victory after victory, not fleeing as if I've been defeated. Have you ever felt that about being one of God's people that this isn't how I thought this would look. Yet it is in the apparent defeats of God's people that he really displays the fact that he has been victorious over the evil one. Now haven't you found that when some trial has pressed you lower than you ever thought you would go, uh, when Satan is surely rejoicing at the state he's put you in as a Christian, that, that is actually when God displays his power and his victory in you the most. When he shows that he is strong and gives you strength. When he makes you more like Jesus in the midst of that trial. At his lowest moment, when Satan would pile in on you, God piles in on him. You know, it's the moment when the battle turns Verses 18 to 19, Joshua stretches out his javelin and the ambush, the heel, rushes in and destroys Ai. It's an echo of the Red Sea when Moses stretched out his staff and the waters of the Red Sea came in and Pharaoh, who thought he had Israel in his clutches, was defeated. God has this habit, if you look for it, you'll see it everywhere, of a poetic justice where his enemies, uh, Satan, the deceiver, thinks he has won but finds himself misled and deceived and defeated. I said earlier that the word heal 
um, that's used to describe that ambushing force should make us think of two Old Testament characters. One, Eve's promised offspring. Uh, the second is Jacob. So Jacob is the, is the same word in Hebrew as the word for heel. Achev, Yachov, they are the same. Jacob's name is a pun on the word heel because he's born holding on to the heel of his brother Esau. Uh, and we're told that that is a sign that he is going to live his life through a cunning and deceit and trickery which plays all the way out through Jacob's life. He doesn't live his life by looking people in the eye. He lives his life through trickery by grabbing people by the heel. Now consider the chief Jacob story in the Old Testament. If you don't know, it's an incredible, weird story. He's the younger brother. He wants the blessing that's due to his older brother. So his mum tells him to put on animal fur to go into his blind old dad and deceive his father to make him think that he's his brother Esau because Esau's a hairy guy. So he goes in under this cloak of uh, hair. His father thinks that it's Esau, thinks he smells like him and Jacob tricks his way into the blessing. Doesn't look his father in the eye but he grabs at the heel and sneaks this blessing away from him. A weird story. We probably don't think Jacob is in the right in that story. But Isaac, his blind old father isn't in the right either because he should have given the blessing to Jacob. So God actually humbles Isaac and gets Isaac to do what he should have done in the first place by giving the blessing to Jacob. God uses Jacob's heel grabbing to humble Isaac and make sure Jacob gets the blessing. And time and time again in the Old Testament, if you look for it, you'll see it, God works through this heel grabbing to humble his enemies. We've seen it already in Joshua. Rahab, the, she's hiding the uh, Israelite spies in her home. The men of Jericho come to ask, where are they? And they are deceived and humbled, and God's plan marches on. So just as Jacob used the heel in cunning, humbling Isaac and others, Joshua uses the heel of his hidden ambush in cunning to humble Ai. Joshua pulls a Jacob at Ai. Jacob, you know, disguised himself in fur to gain a blessing. Joshua disguised himself in defeat to gain victory. And that too, above all, points us to the cross. Didn't the cross, above all things in God's plans, look like a defeat and a retreat? The devil was at work to make the cross happen. We're told he entered into Judas before he betrayed Christ. The cross is where the evil one strikes at Jesus' heel. But more fool him. Because at the cross, the Lord pulls the Jacob. The apparent defeat of the cross is a disguise for the victory that Jesus wins over his great enemy. And that is the pattern of God's people's life After forgiveness, yes, he brings us in to share in his defeat, but often he will make it, um, he brings us in to share in his victory, often he will make it look like defeat. Christian life is victory, 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 but it doesn't often look like it. It doesn't often feel like it. I don't know where you might feel defeated right now, if you're a Christian, where you might feel beset by the evil one, where you might feel like God is making you flee. You thought he'd taken you out of the wilderness. What are we told about Israel when they're running away from Ai? They're going back into the wilderness. 
God, you brought me out of the wilderness. Why have you put me back into it again? But that is exactly where and exactly how God makes us more like Jesus. When he throws trial and temptation and struggle onto us, when we look like we're pressed down and defeated, he makes us more like Jesus. That is a hard lesson to swallow. I struggle to swallow it. I struggle to believe that when God has piled struggle and apparent defeat on me, that that is actually when he can make himself look the most victorious, when he can actually make himself look the strongest, when he can actually make me most like Christ in those situations. Christian life is victory, but it may often look like defeat. Satan may pile on trouble, temptation, trial, all to take us away from Christ, but it's through those very things that our Father in heaven makes us more like Christ and so gains victory over his enemy. So we've seen God's forgiveness. We've seen that after forgiveness, we share in his victory, though that victory often looks like defeat. And lastly, we see after forgiveness comes obedience. We look briefly at verses 30 to 35. Um, The victory's been won, and so God's people go and uh, commit themselves to God again. Joshua takes them uh, to a place where there are two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Uh, He's obeying a command that Moses gave to uh, the people in Deuteronomy uh, 11. Um, He lists all of the blessings, Moses, that Israel will get if they're obedient in the land. And he lists all of the curses that they'll get if they're disobedient. Um, Deuteronomy 11, verse 29 says this, When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you're entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings, and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan westward toward the setting sun near the great trees of Moreh. And that's what Joshua writes down in verse 32 on the stones, not the whole of the law, but these blessings and curses. And he gets all of Israel to stand, half of Israel to stand on one mountain, um, half of them to stand on the other. And he proclaims the blessings to Mount Gerizim, promises of God's goodness if they're obedient. And he proclaims the curses to Mount Ebal, promises of punishment if they disobey. And so having been forgiven, having shared in God's victory, we're reminded that there is a call for God's people to be obedient. God forgives us totally, freely. He lets us share in the victory Jesus wins, not because of anything that we've done, but because he is good and gracious. But there is always the call when God has done that for us to share in obedience. Not to earn anything from him, but in response to what he's freely given us. And yet he's forgiving, even when we struggle to do that, even when we've been forgiven, we've shared in God's victory, we promise obedience, yet we falter in that, we know. God's merciful even when that happens. If you were listening um, to Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy, you'll have heard him say where these mountains are, Mount Gerizim and Ebal, are near the great trees of Moreh, which is where Abraham set up his first altar in Genesis 12. Bethel and Ai was the second altar, um, and here at Moreh is where he set up his first altar. So again, Israel is standing on a bit of ground that is preaching to them, God has unconditionally promised you this land and he'll keep it. Ultimately, Israel suffer those curses, don't they? They are kicked out of the land because of their disobedience. Yet God brings them back to the land after exile. is merciful to them even when they fail to be obedient as they've promised. And we are called to be obedient in the light of God's forgiveness and victory. We can't treat those things lightly. But even when we fail at doing that and deserve his curses, 
Christ has suffered those curses that we might actually enjoy his blessings. So to finish, remember God's forgiveness. It's immediate, it's lavish, it's certain. When we sit at this table, remember that he has been merciful. Look at these physical signs telling you that he has forgiven you. Remember that you share in the victory of Jesus, the serpent crusher. Remember as well, though, that sharing in his victory may often look like defeat. But it's those moments of defeat where we most share in God's victory. God is like Jacob, who grabs at the heel of Satan, humiliates him, and works all of his evil schemes against you for your good and his glory. And let's remember as well that the life of the forgiven, victorious Christian involves a commitment to obey the Lord, but even when we stumble, he's still merciful. Let's stand shortly and sing a hymn together that draws some of these things um, together. It will remind us of the firm foundation that we've got in God's word, that he has forgiven us. Remind us that though we pass through deep waters and fiery trials, in those things he refines us. And though all hell should endeavour to shake us, he will never, never forsake us. Invite the musicians up. I'll stand and sing.